Well, let me say good morning to you, uh, VRBC, you who are here with us in person. It's great to see your faces, you who are joining us online as well. What a privilege to, to worship the one who paid it all for us, to break the bread of life, to drink the cup of salvation uh, together. I can't imagine a better uh, preparation for us as we open God's word to 2 Corinthians. We're in this series, if you're just joining us today, it's called The Power of Weakness. That may seem like a, either a typo or that we're trying to be QC, but we're not, it's neither. Uh, we do believe that one of the main themes of 2 Corinthians is that God uses some of those weak areas that most of us would like to run from uh, and that God can show his power. Last week, we saw how God shows his power in the midst of suffering. And today, we want to see how God shows his power in the midst of conflict as we yield to God. And so we're going to look at a, a painful uh, passage uh, and yet a powerful one in the second chapter of 2 Corinthians. You know, probably over the course of your life, there have been times when you have initiated painful conversations. There have been times when you've uh, been the uh, recipient of a painful conversation. There's probably been times when you've sent difficult letters or emails or texts or you've received them. And, uh, and, and that's kind of what we're going to be reading about today in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And maybe you could reflect on some of those as we read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share in my joy. For I wrote, out, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. May God bless the reading of his word. I want to begin by saying that I believe this sermon is intended for every person in the room and especially for every follower of Christ in the room. So the sermon is for all of us and yet at the same time I want to also acknowledge that each one of us probably approaches the topic from a different perspective. I think when it comes to how we deal with conflict, we are probably all over the map. What do I mean by that? Well, I think you could almost make a, a continuum and on one end of the continuum would be those in the room who enjoy conflict, okay? Uh, uh, th you know, they kind of like mixing it up. 
if they think it, there's a really good chance they're going to say it. Uh, as my uh, friend Jim Mustaine used to say, you know, sometimes there's not a, a filter between your thinker and your talker. And uh, if you think it, you're just going to say it. And, and, and they're not going to sit on frustration uh, for very long at all. So maybe that's kind of one end of, of the continuum. And then I think at the other end of the continuum are those who avoid conflict. It's just almost like pulling teeth to get them to address the elephant in the room. Now, it's just a conjecture on my part. I think there are probably more of us on the avoidance side of the ship than there are on the enjoyment of conflict side of, of the ship. But, uh, but I think this passage is, is for all of us. And so my goal for us is that we would neither relish conflict nor run from it, uh, nor tolerate it, right? but that we would find a God-honoring way of dealing with it. And, and I, my prayer for you, and, and there are people praying for you this morning, that you would lean into this chapter because in the weakness, so what feels like weakness of conflict, we can find God's presence and we can find spiritual fruit. We can even see how painful conflict can lead us to deeper grace and deeper relationships. And so what I hope to do is I hope to, to share some principles uh, of, of how we can position ourselves to experience God's best for us when we're in the middle of conflict. But before we do that, I think it might make sense for us to kind of duck under the yellow caution tape in Corinth uh, to look not at the scene of the crime so much, but the scene of the conflict that Paul is writing about. And there's, I'm just going to say, there's a lot we don't know about it, uh, but I'll try to give you a, a, a summary of what I think we do know. First of all, we know that the church in Corinth had a good bit of conflict going on. We know that the church in Corinth had a lot of issues. Uh, there were believers there who struggled with money. There were believers who, who struggled with divisiveness. There was a party spirit. I like Paul. I like Peter. I like Apollos. That's my leader. Uh, we know that there uh, was certainly sexual immorality in Corinth. And, and Paul, who planted this church in Corinth, would try to pastor them. And he would do it sometimes through the personal visits that he would make, sometimes through the personal letters that he would write. But unfortunately, when Paul would be off somewhere else, like Ephesus or Philippi, let's say, uh, false teachers would come in, um, and they would undermine Paul's authority, and they would say horrible things about Paul behind his back. And because of that, Paul had written what uh, he acknowledged to be a hard letter, a severe letter, a difficult letter, and he had planned to visit them sooner. Um, and, and, and his visit was delayed, and some of his critics were saying, oh, look how wishy-washy Paul is. He, he says he's going to come, and then he doesn't come. And, and uh, so anyway, as we read chapter 2, as we try to connect it to what's going on in Corinth, there, there seems to me to be what you might call micro-conflict and macro-conflict. Think of micro-conflict as the conflict between individuals, and think of macro-conflict as sort of the, the, the broader churn in a community where individuals are at conflict. So for example, uh, let's say that you go to a, a family reunion and, um, and in, the midst, in, in the midst of the fish fry, uh, with all these you know, extended family members together, your cantankerous aunt and your ill-mannered nephew uh, get into uh, just a bitter argument, okay? And they almost like have to be separated. And, and, and as they are separated, you've got a group that surrounds the ant, 
And then you've got a group that surrounds the nephew. And, 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 and the group that surrounds the aunt says, I can't believe how disrespectful that young man is, right? And the group that surrounds the nephew say, I can't believe how negative Aunt Bessie always is, you know? And so what, what happens is, and it's not uncommon at all, is you have this micro-conflict between the two of them, but notice how it affects the broader family. Notice how the churn kind of goes through the whole group. Well, I think it's that kind of macro and micro conflict that form the backdrop of the passage that we're studying today. There's obviously micro conflict going on. There's an individual that committed a pretty horrible sin. Some people think the sin was of a, of a gross sexual nature, and you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 5. I tend to side with those who think that the, the sin was committed by a rogue leader in the church who had been slandering Paul behind his back. And so there was this conflict between Paul and this divisive man. Well, that's going on on a micro level, but what's happening on a macro level? Well, the church is churned up. There's a lot of anxiety and nervousness and frustration in the church as a whole, and Paul can sense it. And when I read about that, somewhere in my spirit, I just go, Ugh, <laughs> right? Um, I don't know about you, but, but church pain makes me nauseous. I need Dramamine uh, when I encounter church pain. And yet, though, and yet, Paul believes this passage teaches that God can do such powerful things in the midst of of conflict. And so the simple question I want to try to answer today is when do we see God most in times of conflict? When do we see the power of God show up in the midst of the weakness of being in conflict with one another? Well, I want to suggest that Paul, as the Spirit moves him, demonstrates three moves. They're not necessarily intuitive. In fact, you could say they're counterintuitive. And yet all three moves are powerful. And so as we walk through them, I want you to think about kind of the state of your relationships right now and just to be thinking about, is there something that God is leading you, moving you to do? So first move is this. The first move is when reflex gives way to discernment. What does that mean? when reflex gives way to an attitude of discernment. Well, one of the things that astounds me about this letter is how much thought Paul puts in to dealing with conflict. I mean, Paul makes this a matter of prayerful discernment. He makes a visit. Uh, he writes a letter. He makes a visit. He writes a letter. Uh, in verse 1, he says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. He, he's thinking about it, he's praying about it, he's trying to figure out, he's trying to discern the Spirit's leading as to the best course of action. Maybe before he felt a need to confront the dysfunction head on, right? Directly, person to person. But now as he prays about it, he's thinking, you know what? In, in this moment, 
maybe dealing with it, if I, if I try to deal with it again head on, I may just inflame it and make it worse. Maybe in this moment, I need to deal with it a little less directly. I need to write a letter. Now, my main reason for pointing this out in verse 1 is not to try to argue the merits of face-to-face versus written uh, communication when we're in conflict. No, my main reason is just to say Paul is practicing discernment. And guess what? Discernment is what is most often, so often, absent when we're in the middle of conflict with one another. Instead of discernment, we give way to reflex. You've heard this before, right? It's that fight or flight mechanism. And so maybe sometimes, and and it's not like anybody's like all fight or all flight, you know, we probably are a mixture of the two, but but sometimes, you know, that, that instinctive reaction is to fight, and so we lash out in destructive verbal anger. Or sometimes the instinctive reflex is flight, And uh, we're quick to run away from conflict and we ghost people in the process. Or in addition, sometimes there's almost a lazy tolerance. We don't don't fight and we don't flee, but but we just sort of tolerate dysfunction. We, We tolerate things that really need conversation. And so what I want to say to you is, is, is handling conflict in a godly manner will demand some of your best thinking some of your best strategizing, and some of your best prayer. Sometimes it will mean knowing when to confront something and when to just patiently eat the bad news and, and pray and move on, right? I mean, sometimes it will, it will be the decision of whether or not to confront someone in your family for the dirty sock that is left on the staircase and whether to just say, you know, I'm not going to make a big deal. I'm just going to pick up the sock. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. But then there may be other times where it's going to mean, hey, you know what? That's something I want to talk with you about. It's not a huge deal, but it is kind of getting under my skin a little bit. And that's these socks uh, that are just everywhere. Uh, Can we talk about this? I, I think it takes prayer. I think it takes the wisdom and discernment of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think about this. What is your go to reflex when it comes to conflict? Earlier, I mentioned that if you lined us out on a continuum, some of us might be more toward the end of an unhealthy enjoyment of conflict. Some of us might be more on the end of an unhealthy avoidance of conflict. I thought I'd go ahead and self-identify this morning. I'm on the conflict avoidant side. Uh, I'm naturally conflict avoidant. Even, by the way, when I'm a third party. I can remember when my boys were playing uh, you know, Little League Baseball, and some dads would start yelling at the umpire for the way he was calling balls and strikes. I mean, it, it, it wasn't me. I'm not the ump. I'm not the dad. It wasn't even my kid, but I just want to melt kind of right through, uh, you know, right through the bleachers. It just makes me uncomfortable. I, I don't like conflict. I, I bet I can count the number of times on one hand, maybe one finger, when I've sent a steak back to the kitchen at a restaurant, uh, I'll just, you know, saw through that chewy steak because I I don't like conflict. And I'm just going to be transparent here that this tendency, this reflex to avoid conflict has brought quite a few challenges in my life as a friend, as a family member, and especially as a pastor. I once worked on a large church staff, and sometimes I would find myself in individuals with uh, conversations with, with staff members who were frustrated 
with other staff members. You thought that never happened, but uh, occasionally it does. And, I, and so I would maybe say, talk to one staff member, and that staff member would say to me, you know what, Larry, I think if this church wants to truly worship with excellence, they're going to have to be willing to spend some money. And I would find myself saying, yes, invest in ministry. And then the next day, I would talk to another staff member who was in conflict with a staff member the previous day, and this staff member would say to me, you know what, Larry, we can't just keep throwing money at programs and stay solvent as a church. At some point, we're going to have to show some budgetary discipline. And I would say, yes, fiscal responsibility. (laughs) And I would walk away from those conversations thinking, oh my gosh, if staff member A talks to staff member B tomorrow, I'm going to be exposed as a chameleon and as a fraud, right? Mm. That was in my 30s. And as I entered this job in my late 30s, 40s, 50s, and now 60s, I started to realize, man, I, I, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. Now, am I a, a black belt at this? No, but I'm not, a, I'm not a white belt anymore. Is that a thing, a white belt? I'm not a yellow belt anymore either. I think I'm, I think I'm learning slow progress, but I hope you're learning too. At whatever end of the continuum you're on, one of the things that I pray for is, is courage to do what Paul does, and that is to face challenging issues we'd rather avoid with great wisdom and great courage. Recently, I wrote this in my uh, journal, a a quote that I read from a writer named James Clear. Uh, He writes on productivity, and he talks about all the things that we tend to put off because we don't want to start them. Like, I know I need to write in my journal, but I don't want to do it right now. I know I need to exercise, but, oh, man, the first five minutes on the track are going to be frustrating. I, I know I need to do that chore that I've been putting off. For me, it's, it's the um, air filter in the attic. Uh, I know I need to do it, but I don't want to do it. You know, and so he, and so he asked this question. James Clear asked this question. He says, are you willing to be uncomfortable for five minutes? And I, I'm not saying that. Conflict conversations only have five minutes of discomfort. I'm not saying that at all, but, but sometimes it's saying, I'm, I'm avoiding this, maybe, but I'm willing to power through. Now, by the way, if you're on the other side of the continuum, right, I can't speak personally or autobiographically about that, but, but I think you need to ask yourself the same question. Like, how much constructive feedback uh, can my child, my spouse, my uh, supervisor, or my employee tolerate from me? If I'm the kind of person that's just always just keeping it real and throwing it out there, I mean, is there a point where I'm just going to overwhelm them with my constructive criticism, right? I think the point here is to say, to, to engage in conflict with spiritual discernment. There's a second principle I think that we see here. We see God move in, in, in situations of conflict, weakness of conflict, in powerful ways. Secondly, when harshness gives way to tenderness. When a harsh spirit gives way to a tender spirit. Let's be honest, so much conflict goes sideways because we meet harshness with harshness. We escalate, right? 
someone calls us a name and we shove them and they slap us and we punch them and they take a chair, right? And it just, it just goes up and it goes up really quickly. I mean, think about this. If you come at me with a harsh tone of level five, what do you think I'm going to come back at you with? Six? Maybe just go straight to seven, right? Which is going to leave you no choice but to go to eight or maybe nine, right? We escalate. Harshness comes naturally. But what strikes me about these words is how Paul, who let's just let's acknowledge, Paul knew how to be painfully direct, okay? But, but Paul turns in this moment not to harshness but to tenderness. I think one of the powerful turns we make in conflict is when we stop trying so hard to win the argument, to destroy our opponent in the court of law, when we stop trying so hard to win or to intimidate, and we simply pull back the curtain of our own hearts, we show a surprising tenderness. Not, not uh, cowardice, but tenderness. I want you to see how Paul does this in verse 4. Paul pulls back the curtain and he says, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but here's the purpose, to let you know the depth of my love for you. Isn't that a, a brilliant description of tenderness? I'm going to pull back the curtain. I'm going to show you. Uh, uh, I'm going to show you my, uh, the state of my heart. I'm going to show you my grief, I don't know if you can tell, but that blot right there on the ink is my tears as I think about this situation with you. You know, when we're in conflict with somebody and they stop lobbing verbal mortar shells at us and they get very transparent and vulnerable with us, something powerful can happen. When they say, I want to show you my brokenness. When they say, I want, I want to show you my tears. When they say, I want to show you the depth of my love for you. I mean, that can be a game changer. That can completely redirect a dysfunctional conflict situation. I, I for many years, worked for a pastor who was just so incredibly kind to me. He was, and I think still is, one of my biggest supporters and, and cheerleaders. And, and he was so good to me. And one day in a meeting, um, a staff meeting, I challenged him in front of our team in a way that was uh, harsh and, and flippant and sarcastic. I knew, by the way, as soon as I'd said it, that I'd crossed the line. And I thought, well, before uh, he calls me into his office, I'm just going to walk into his office and I'm going to say sorry and get out of there. And, uh, and I, I tried to do that and he, and he wouldn't let me leave. He looked at me and he just said, I want to tell you how that made me feel when you challenge me publicly about something that you never share with me privately. And then he looked me in the eyes and, and, and tears were rolling down his cheeks and he said, Pars, he calls me Pars. He said, Pars, I'm for you. I'm on your team. You don't have to do that. He had every right to be harsh. When he pulled back the curtain, I mean, it broke me. It broke me in a good way. In verses 4 and 5, Paul is not afraid to show us grief. And he's not afraid to acknowledge the grief the Corinthians feel. And I just want you to know, friends, that kind of tenderness is 
powerful. There's a, a retired pastor I admire. His name is Gordon McDonald, and he once shared a story about some friends of his, Christian leaders, named Paul and Edith Reese. He says when, when Paul and Edith were in their 90s, you know, they'd been married for, for 60 plus years. And he said, he asked Paul one day, you know, Paul, you guys have been married for 60 years. Do you ever fight anymore? And Paul says, well, of course we do. <laughs> he said, in fact, yesterday morning, uh, uh, case in point, uh, Edith and I were in the car and she was driving and she ran through a stop sign and it scared me half to death. And McDonald said, so, so what'd you do? And, and Paul says, you know what? I've loved Edith for all these years. And he says, I think over time, I've learned how to say hard things to her. He said, but I have to be careful because when Edith was a little girl, her father always spoke to her harshly. And today, whenever she hears a manly voice speak in anger, even if it's my voice, she is deeply, deeply hurt. And Gordon McDonald said, but Paul, Edith is 90 years old. Are you telling me she still remembers a harsh voice from that many years ago? And Paul said, Gordon, she remembers that voice now more than ever. Gordon was like, well, what'd you do? He said, I waited till we got home. We both had our afternoon nap. And then when we got up, he said, I gently brought it up. Friends, he didn't avoid the truth, right? And who knows how many things Edith had to learn to do with Paul, too, over the years, right? But, but, but when we turn harshness into tenderness, I think God can do amazing things in our, our friendships, our marriages, our relationships, our parenting, and our church. When reflex turns to discernment, right? when harshness turns to, discern, to uh, tenderness, and then when condemnation gives way to forgiveness. This passage makes a fascinating turn, doesn't it? Months earlier, Paul had to confront the church because they failed to confront this man who was causing so much trouble in the church. There was an elephant in the room in the, in the church. Nobody had the courage to confront it. And Paul had to urge the church to confront this man. But now Paul does something I just love. In verse six, he basically says, okay, enough's enough. The punishment, he says, is sufficient. Not only that, Paul says, you know what, now is not the time for keeping this man in relational jail because of his sin. No, you got to let him out of jail. Or here's the way Paul puts it in verses 7 and 8. He says, now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul has good things to say about godly sorrow. That leads to, to repentance, but not excessive sorrow. So Paul says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Friends, the point right, of godly confrontation is not condemnation. That's not the goal. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is forgiveness. The goal is comfort. The message paraphrases verse 7 to say, now is the time to forgive this man and help him back on his feet. If all you do is pour on the guilt, you could very well drown him in it. Such a wise word. Paul is clear in verse 10. I forgive him, you forgive him. Right? Because we're the ones whom Christ has forgiven so 
much. The ultimate goal of conflict is not giving people a piece of our minds. The ultimate goal of conflict is not giving that guy what's coming to him. The ultimate goal is love, forgiveness, reconciliation. No, we do not turn a blind eye to injustice. We call it out. But our ultimate goal, our end game, is forgiveness. Paul closes our text in verse 11 by just reminding us of Satan's schemes. Satan wants us to run from conflict or to revel in it. Satan wants us to avoid conflict or to keep stirring things up, one or the other. Satan wants us to rush headlong into harsh words or to withhold grace and truth from one another. Satan wants us to let resentment fester for years. Satan always wants to divide a marriage, a family, a church. Paul's not fallen for it. Look at what he says in verse 11. We need to do this in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. It's kind of like saying, uh-uh, <laughs> not here, Satan, not here, not today, Satan. Not, not, we know your tricks, right? We know the kind of division that you like to create. But with the, the, the grace of Jesus to forgive us and the help of his Holy Spirit, we resolve not to let Satan outwit us, to let conflict divide us. No, we want to see in the weakness of conflict how our relationships can grow stronger. Friends, can I just ask you, I mean, don't say it out loud, but is there a way God is prompting you? Is there a face the Lord has brought to your mind? Is there an incident? What is God saying? How might the evil one want to use that occasion to put a wedge in our relationships? And how might discernment and tenderness and forgiveness turn it around? I'll I'll close with a story. It's kind of a dark story. I don't usually close with dark stories. But uh, it's about a a European politician who was interviewed in The Guardian in 2016. And he told the interviewer that he liked to carry around with him a little black book. And it was filled with the names of people who had crossed him through the years. And he had names of people who had crossed him going back 30 years years. And for some reason, he called his journal, I don't speak French, but he called his journal Le Petit Maurice. Little Maurice, that's what he called his journal. And he was known to tell people who crossed him, he was for a time the prime minister of Luxembourg, he was known to tell people who crossed him, you better be careful, little Maurice is waiting for you. Now that's one way to do it. (laughs) But then when you think about how Jesus Christ has done it, when you think about all the ways we betrayed Jesus, can you imagine? I mean, if Jesus were just only carrying around my book, Le Petit Larry, right? Can you imagine how big that book would be? Can you imagine if Jesus said, watch out, Larry. I've got it all in the book. Oh, friends, I'm so glad to rejoice in what the psalmist says in Psalm 130. The psalmist says, if you, Lord, kept a little Maurice, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. 
so that we can with reverence serve you. Friends, you who call Christ Lord, stand in the grace and forgiveness of Christ. You stand in freedom. You stand in hope. So let's throw away our little black books. (laughs) We don't need them in our weakness, in our relational pain. God is strong, and God will work in us and through us for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if you kept a record of sins, none of us could stand. But we rejoice that with you in Christ, you paid it all. In the cross at Calvary, with you there is forgiveness, hope, grace, and freedom. And Lord, we want to see you continue to broaden that grace and that freedom. We thank you, Lord, for the relative unity that we enjoy in this church. We believe it to be a gift from you. We thank you for it. But Lord, we know the enemy is a schemer. The enemy is always scheming. And so, Lord, fill us with a spirit of discernment. Fill us with a, a spirit of tenderness. Fill us, Lord, with a spirit of forgiveness. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.